That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came up to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even, when they ha even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the soul means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. This is the word of the Lord. Hello everyone. If we're yet to meet, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at church. I'm normally over at 6pm Neutral Bay in the evening, so I don't get to get here often, but it's always a privilege when I do get to get here. That being said, I have to run off to go preach at 6 after this. So if you have questions, I hear Julia's got a lot of wisdom about the Bible, so you might like to direct your questions to her. If you didn't get one of these, these are really helpful. It's a sermon series booklet as we guide through Matthew. It's very pretty, The Kingdom of Heaven. It's got some resources for you. It will give you insight into Matthew, to parables. But for tonight, if you wanted to take notes, there's a spot for each sermon for you to be able to jot down notes. So that might be helpful to you. But we are introducing this idea of the Kingdom of Heaven. So tonight, what I'd prefer to do is spend my time broken into two things. On the one hand, I'd love to orient ourselves towards the kingdom of heaven because it's such a prevalent idea 
not just in the book of Matthew, but in the section that we're tackling. It is this enormous theme that defines so much of what Jesus is trying to do here. So we're going to do most of our time there to begin with, and then we'll finish off by delving into the parable of the sower specifically to see how that orients ourselves towards the kingdom and and positions ourselves to receive it in fullness and all that it is. But my question as we kick off is this. Have you ever just sat and longed for something to deeply change? Maybe you yourself have been in a place of brokenness, sitting on rock bottom, feeling like you can't fall any further. Maybe there's just something in your life or the life of those you love that you have no control over. You just have this cry in your soul, God, why? What are you doing? I just long for you to do something here. Maybe it's in the world at large as you just sit and you look out and read the news and just glimpse the neighborhood that you live in and you see that this place is messed up. There is a brokenness that's pervasive, just woven seemingly into the fabric of everything that exists whether you're looking over at Israel right now or you're looking at the Ukraine or so many millions of people living in poverty, you're sitting here thinking, God, this is not what it should be. Something is wrong. Maybe you're just stepping into the political arena and just seeing that every person wants to elevate someone and say, when this person finally gets elected and they get into this power, then they'll be able to implement X, Y, and Z, and then things will be different because something needs to change. Ironically, everyone says the same thing, even though they say opposite things entirely and they butt heads completely. But the point is there, there's something deep within us that recognizes there is a brokenness. Something is not right. And Jesus has something to say. His very first words in the book of Matthew come in chapter 4, and he steps onto the scene, and here's where he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is right here. This state of this world, the brokenness within you, the brokenness within them, the brokenness that exists all over the place has a solution. There is hope, there is change, there is opportunity, and it has come wrapped up in this man named Jesus as he stands and says, look, right here, right now, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that is everything that we're looking at in these sections of Matthew. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard the term, the phrase before. It comes up a lot, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. You've probably tossed it around so many times and read it so many times in your Bible in a year plan, because Matthew is always the first book that you read, right? And so you always read Matthew. And you see this phrase again and again and again, probably so much that you've become over-familiar to it. It doesn't mean much to you. Or if this phrase is new to you, Well, it's new to you, and so it doesn't really mean much. We need a fresh vision of the kingdom because it is central to who Jesus is and central to the life that he offers us. In very shorthand, N.T. Wright suggests this, that the Gospels tell the story of how God became king. Simple, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. But It is a story that upturns every expectation that we have of what that means, including yours and mine. The original expectation when Jesus came on the scene, Jesus just completely flipped it upside down. His original Jewish audience were very familiar with this idea of kingdom. 
In about the 6th century, the Jewish people are in exile in Babylon. They're languishing in their pain and in their slavery. Looking back to these promises of God and crying out, God, where are you? And he delivers them and brings them back to their land. But these subsequent centuries find them just being completely ruled and and overwhelmed by various foreign rulers who have their way with them. And so despite being freed from their slavery, they're still sitting here thinking, God, you promised so much in your scripture, and yet here we are in the midst of this pain and brokenness. There's a small little blip of hope called the Maccabean Revolt, where they were like, right, enough's enough. This guy just did some stuff in our temple, and we're not for it. And so they finally like overthrew their rulers for a short window of time until the Roman Empire came in with their iron fist and smashed them down. And so the Jews who are listening to Jesus are sitting here with this eager expectation that the ancient promises of God and those that were given to them in their exile would finally come to fruition in a Messiah and in a kingdom to come. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come near, they're thinking, yeehaw, now we're going. This is it. This is everything that we have been longing for. And yet Jesus met none of their expectations. Because he says the kingdom of heaven has come near and then did almost the opposite of everything they wanted him to do. They wanted him to find the tallest horse, because it's very impressive, and the longest sword that he could carry, and just walk in and lop the Roman emperor's head off, so that finally the Jewish people can be restored to their rightful prominence at the center of everything, and brought back to their independence, and brought back to their worship, so that he might reign as king over all things, yeah, kingdom of heaven, and he might do that all to the glory of Israel and to the glory of God. And Jesus was lifted up as a king, but he wasn't lifted up in glory, he was lifted up in mockery. He was hung on a cross with the plaque saying, the king of the Jews, and entirely at his expense. They fixed a crown upon him, but it was a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold. And in his deepest shame, ironically, was the moment where the kingdom of heaven was most loudly declared upon the world. But the Jews had no idea about it because they completely missed it. Yet I want to suggest maybe we miss the point of the kingdom too. We have the beauty of hindsight. We also have the beauty of the New Testament. It's actually incredible how much more we have to to read and to receive. And yet sometimes I fear that we, I include myself entirely in that, miss the beauty and the sheer almost blasphemy of what is offered us in Christ when He says the kingdom of heaven has come near. We understand that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that sinful people can be made right with God. We get that. We know that the cross where he was hung up as a king, even though it was not what they expected, was a moment where his blood was shed to wash away our sin so that we could be forgiven and that we could no longer be held in condemnation with our sin. We understand that, but is that all it is? Is there more to it? We talk about um, this idea of the kingdom that is now but not yet. Because there is this reality that Jesus came once And he did all the things that he did, and he died, and he rose again, and that's beautiful, and we know that we're forgiven. And then we look over here to the end, we even sung about it tonight beautifully, that there will be a moment when Jesus returns, and he brings us all together to him, he does away with the brokenness, and he makes us all perfect, and finally we can be where we long to be, and that's true, and that's true, but what about this middle? Is it just, hold on, just grit your teeth, bear through the pain, and one day you'll die, and then finally you'll be in heaven? Is that simply what the kingdom is? 
is this idea that we're forgiven, so we're, we're washed of our sin, brought back to a blank slate, and now it's like, all right, well, don't stuff it up again, okay? Because one day we want to get you to this perfection business. If you could just let all the pain do something good for you, that, is that all there is? Jesus meant so much more by the idea of the kingdom. The language of the Apostle Paul, he very rarely uses the language of kingdom, if at all, but he depicts incredible, beautiful realities for those who come to God. He describes primarily you and me, if you know Jesus, as being in Christ. When you receive the kingdom of heaven, you, in your fragile, little broken, sinful state, are taken and made one with the divine, such that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. And in this breath of a moment that we find ourselves, He doesn't leave us as orphans. He fills us with His Holy Spirit. The God who has existed before all creation, He indwells you. The presence of the living God and the power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus. That is the reality of the kingdom of heaven right now for all who know Jesus. Yes, of course, forgiveness and, and coming out of condemnation and into relationship is a huge part of that. But God has brought something into our life that is incredible. Tim Keller writes about our parable that we're about to look at. He says, in the parable of the sower, we see that Jesus did not just come to bring forgiveness of sins, but the very kingdom of God. In other words, forgiveness of sins is just the beginning. The kingdom of God is nothing less than the power of God in heaven, entering the world to heal every alienation and every brokenness. There are a wonderful array of verses that we put on our wall, that we memorize, that we hold dear to our hearts, but they mean so much when we come face to face with them. When he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. We're being invited to come and live in the way of Jesus, and it's incredible what the kingdom does in us as we come and live with him. When Jesus comes, he says, I have come so that you may have life and life to the full. Not just when you die and eventually find your way to heaven, but right now the abundant life in him. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, He says, the real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as Himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject His kind of life and thought, His Zoe life into you, beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live person. The part of you that does not like it is the part that is still tin. Dallas Willard, commenting on the kingdom, says this, Jesus came among us to show and teach the life for which we were made. He came very gently, opened access to the governance of God with him, and set afoot a conspiracy of freedom in truth among human beings. Having overcome death, he remains among us. By relying on his word and presence, we are enabled to reintegrate the little realm that makes up our life into the infinite rule of God. And that is the eternal kind of life 
caught up in His active rule. Our deeds become an element in God's eternal history. They are what God and we do together, making us part of His life and Him a part of ours. It almost feels too much to describe that God might do that in us and with us. Suggesting that just at the beginning of creation, when we were made in the image of God, we were entrusted to rule. Every human has this kingdom that they are ruling over. And as we invite God to have His way in the kingdom of heaven, He comes in and with us, partners us in it. And so, in our series in Matthew, we are looking at the kingdom of heaven. Someone's getting a phone call? That's totally fine. This is God speaking. Kingdom of heaven. And I want to invite you, if you're a believer, to come to these next 10 weeks with fresh eyes, because it is familiar. We read the Gospels regularly. We hear these terms again and again, but perhaps God is speaking and doing something more than we think. And if this is new to you in any way, I want to ask you to come with open hearts, open ears, and open eyes as Jesus speaks about this parable, to come and receive something beautiful that He might offer you. So that's the kingdom of heaven. That's our series. But where I want us to finish tonight is having a look at what Jesus himself says about this kingdom. Because in chapter 13, he speaks about this parable as, this is incredible, verse 11, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. It kind of feels like a conspiracy, like the Illuminati. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about that in church, but we are. Then you go to all these other parables, and he begins all of them by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, hello, This is constituting everything that Jesus is teaching here. And so, we want to come and orient ourselves, knowing the background, to hear what Jesus has to say. So, if you've got your Bibles, open Matthew chapter 13. We're simply going to walk through it slowly and hear what God might have to say to us today. So, this is the first parable that Jesus introduced, and it's not just number one before others. It is the first. In a way, it does govern what we read in the rest of them. Michael Green in his commentary says, the first of the parables is the most significant of all. It's not just a farmer who went out to sow his field. It is literally the farmer. And he comes bringing the precious seed which can transform the soil. The kingdom comes when the soil and the seed get together. It is a marriage of seed and soil. The seed is the word of God proclaimed by the sower of God. And the kingdom begins to come in a life when the soil receives the seed for the word itself. Thus, it begins to germinate and shoot. The question that the parable of the sower is this farmer sows his seed is to say, this is very distracting, but that's A-OK. The question that this parable of the sower seeks to answer is how does the kingdom come in the world? We're good, great. How does the kingdom come in the world? I think there's two facets that we need to consider in this. How does the kingdom come in the world as we look out at the world, as the the message of the kingdom goes out, what should we expect to see? That's what Jesus is preparing us for here. But as a parable takes root in our imagination, it's also going to ask hard questions of ourselves. So as much as the parable teaches us about what happens out there, it also forces us to ask some hard questions about what's happening in here. When we speak about soil, we're speaking about the reality of the human heart, and we must come face to face with the reality of our own souls. And so, how does the kingdom come? It comes slowly, and it comes in the hearts of people. Let's walk through it. The first soil that Jesus mentions in verse 
3, 4, as he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. His explanation is verse 19, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. I personally don't like birds very much, and here's proof, they're satanic. You know, if you're into birds, I'm really sorry. That's just, it just came to me earlier today. I was like, I need to tell everyone that birds are from Satan. Beside the point. This is a very strong word. It's saying that when we talk about the kingdom with people, some of them will want to have nothing to do with it. The immediate spiritual reality is that the seed is taken like that. On the one hand, that's quite confronting, that we should expect to have a problem and a defiance as the message of Jesus goes out. But on the other hand, it's really comforting when God Himself says this is what's going to happen. It doesn't surprise God when people don't receive the kingdom, and it shouldn't surprise us either. There is a reality of what's going on here. There's something deeper happening in verse 19 where the enemy is the one who snatches away the seed. We good? Yeah, great. The enemy snatches away the seed. There's something going on here where this this reality of the kingdom going out to people is going to be impacted by someone who has power beyond our control. When you start to consider your family and your loved ones, your friends and those who you long to know Jesus, there is a moment where you have to realize some of this is beyond you. You do not have the power to turn someone into a Christian. You do not have the words to convince someone into the kingdom of heaven. Because here in this this negative sense, there is an enemy who seeks to take away the seed. And the flip side is the positive, is that we require God to do the work that only He can do to convert and bring dead souls to life, hard hearts softened. This is not to suggest if you tell someone about Jesus that they're they're gone forever. You kind of like, you know, talk to your uncle at dinner and you say like, hey, have you heard about Jesus? He's like, I want nothing to do with it. And you go, well, you're just the rocky path soil and I'm done with you. You know, you you don't do that. The New Testament is full of these stories of people who were once far from God, hard against God, who come to God ultimately after time. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he was dedicating his Jewish ministry to persecuting and killing Christians, we would have described him immediately as this soil. The enemy is present here, and yet when he is confronted with Jesus on the Damascus Road, we see he's actually good soil. And so we don't use this to slap people around with a predestination hat of like, okay, well, you're not a believer, so we're done with you and we keep on moving. Instead, it's actually a call to pray deeply for people, to expect that God can move. And as we do the work of God, to not be disheartened when we come across difficulty. Second soil is the rocky soil. Verse 5, some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Verse 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The defining reality of this moment, this seed, the people who receive God like this, 
is that there is a response, there is joy, there is a moment of light coming on, of Jesus being present. In in the parables language, there is a plant that grows up. And so I'm not trying to be too confronting here, but we may be sitting right here amongst one another where some of us are actually this rocky soil, where to all appearances we seem to be believers, knowing Jesus and being members of the kingdom of heaven, and yet the sun hasn't risen yet. And when it does, it will burn us and we will fall away. I became a Christian in high school, and a couple of my closest friends who I walked that journey with have walked away in the faith. Some of them, I thought, stronger in faith than I was. And yet, here we are. It's confronting. It's heartbreaking when you get to be involved in someone's life, and you invest in them, and you see them seemingly receiving Jesus with joy and walking that journey and falling away. What seems to be here is a lack of depth. It's rocky soil. There's no room for the roots to go deep. There's no opportunity for nourishment to to fuel this plant such that it can weather the sun when it comes. And so there is a, a spiritual reality of people who hear the good news of Jesus, who receive it, who believe it, who can understand it cognitively, who can logically unpack the reality of it and assent to it with their minds, but the rest of their life lacks the integrity or the reality of fixing itself in the kingdom of heaven. It would seem that this kind of person has agreed to the kingdom of heaven at one level, but for the majority of their life, they are actually oriented to the kingdom of this world. There's no depth there's no root. And so as we see that out there, we expect it, we, we acknowledge it, we prepare for it. But as we look within ourselves, we have to ask the question, do I have deep roots in Jesus? Is there a deeper reality to my faith than I just believe it because I grew up with it? Or I came to faith at one point and that's just what I mark on the census, I'm a Christian. I mean, that's a big call these days with the rising runs, but you know what I'm saying. Do you have depth? Paul says in Colossians, just as you receive Christ, so continue in Him. Firmly established, built up, roots going deep. Have you fixed yourself in Christ? The next soil is the thorny soil. Verse 6, no, verse 7, sorry. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And the description later is verse 22, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. As I was reading this this week, I found this the most confronting one. Because just like the rocky soil, there is a plant that grows up. There is a reality to the gospel in your life. You, you start to come forth and grow. And unlike the rocky soil, there's actually root. There's depth. There's something that's truly coming out here. There's a life that's turning towards Jesus, that's repenting of sin, that's, that's looking to live more and more like Him, but perhaps unseen in the, in the soil of your heart or in the context of your life, equally growing is the, are these thorns. These alternative ways, these, these things that hold firm to the kingdom of the world that are, that are actually growing up so much so that they will destroy the kingdom of heaven within us, that will choke out the plant that has grown. I get so concerned because we live in a world that is just so full of noise and content and entertainment 
such that we aren't even realizing how much we've drawn into our hearts and the effect which that is having upon our souls. I get concerned because like fish, we don't really even realize half the time the water that we're swimming in, the context of our secular world and how it's impacting our approach to following Jesus. How often we have a gospel that is beautiful and true, but a life that follows the script of the world around us. And if it's left unchecked, there is a mortal reality that we may lose our lives in Christ. It's scary. He mentions two particular points. He says, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. I think those are important. The worries of this life are large and insurmountable when one has not truly lived and set roots deeply in Jesus such that it governs your entire existence. There's a hymn that says, um, fix your eyes upon Jesus. I can't even remember right now. Turn your eyes toward Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The positive reality is that when we are fixed upon Jesus, the worries of this world have no place with us because we know hope, and we know who holds the world in his hand. But when we don't have that, we see that the worries of this life run the risk of choking out our plant and leaving us destitute and dead. The deceitfulness of wealth, I mean, Jesus is speaking largely to an agrarian society of people who don't have that much comparatively. We are arguably the wealthiest people that have ever existed, and if you throw a rock hard enough, you'll hit Balmoral Beach. I can't imagine the level of strength that Jesus might speak to us with this, and yet he says the deceitfulness of wealth is so much so that it might choke us because there is this incongruent reality of fixing your treasury here in this world or here in Christ. He says in the Sermon on the Mount that you can't serve two masters. You can only serve God or money. Take your pick. And that's what we're being confronted with here. And so we do have our eyes open as we seek after God, as we live in church together, and as we do connect group, that we, we look at one another in the eye and we take each other's seriously, the, the reality of our souls. We expect that as the kingdom goes forward that there is going to be opportunities like this where people actually walk away from the faith because they'd much prefer something they can put their hands on rather than the intangible of God. But again, how does this confront the reality of your soul? I don't know if you're into gardening, but it's time to do some weeding. Have you tended the soil of your soul? Have you uprooted any and every belief, ideology, desire that runs counter to Jesus because thorns will kill us? And lastly, the good soil. It's good to finish on a good note. Verse 8, still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Verse 23, the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what is sown. I think the key word here to define the good soil and what we should seek to embody is this word understands. The good soil is a person who hears the message of the kingdom and who understands it, not just understanding the logical progression or the ideas and theology, 
but who understands the weight and reality of what Jesus is presenting here. Because when we truly understand the kingdom of heaven, we will turn our whole being towards it. We will live a life in complete integrity towards and with the kingdom of heaven. Of course, we'll do it imperfectly because we're still awaiting this perfection. But once we truly understand it, that is when we will turn toward, and that is when God will bring forth this, this fruitfulness, 160, 30 times what was once sown. Some people would suggest this is like an evangelistic fruit, that if you start to flourish in the kingdom, others will come and meet Jesus. That could be it. The word for crop literally is just the same word for fruit, and I'm more persuaded that this is referring to those who are planted in good soil, tending the thorns and weeds, and who are fixed entirely because they understand what Jesus has offered. They will bear the fruit of that kingdom. They will bear the fruit of the Spirit. The thing is, you can't force fruit. You can't just like shake an apple tree and be like, come on, force your fruit. You can't be a plant and just work harder to try and produce fruit. Fruit comes from God. But we have the duty and the reality of the soil of our hearts. And that is where we can do what we can, where we can put in place those things that keep our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our behaviors fixed on Jesus, where we can uproot those things that cause pain and difficulty, and we can orient ourselves more towards God. And the promise of the indwelling Spirit within us is that He will bear fruit in us. And so, this is a confronting parable, one of which we will see lived out as we preach the gospel. It's one that we'll see in our hearts too. It's one that we need to take seriously in our hearts, but we do it knowing that Jesus offers the life that is truly life and the power of the Spirit who is the one who bears fruit in us. Let me commit that message to us in prayer. God Almighty, You made all things, You hold all things together. You look upon us in a world that is broken, and rather than leaving it to itself, You, Jesus, stepped in. You offer us the life that is truly life. You usher in the kingdom of heaven available to all. Lord, thank You for this message in the parable of the sower. Let it take root in us that we might be consistently orienting our lives to you and tending the soils of our hearts. Amen.